Good morning, church. Welcome to another virtual worship gathering at the Hallows Church. My name is Mark. I serve as one of the pastors here. And our passage this morning is a timely and welcomed one. Our passage is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 17. And it's the second half of the letter that Peter begins writing, and he's applying the reality of how this chosen race, this royal priesthood, sinners of a different sort, are to live in a fallen world. The missiologist Michael Frost, he once asked a group of believers this question. He asked, what does it mean for the church to be faithful followers of Jesus in a post-Christian context? Now, by post-Christian, one way to define that would be saying living in a culture where Christians are unable to rely on the social and cultural rhythms as conducive to our values as believers. So in this fallen world filled with trials, filled with difficulties, what does it mean for the church to be faithful? Scripture provides us this answer. Christians are called to live honorable lives to the glory of the gospel. As strangers and exiles, we honor God by fighting sin with sober dependence, showing others irresistible goodness, defining holy submission, and living our citizenship with purposeful freedom. Those are the four elements of our, of our passage this morning. And it is, our sermon title is Honor in Action. For honor to be actionable, these are four elements that we're gonna look at. So let's kick things off in verse 11. Verse 11, it says, Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Now, Peter begins by a friend welcoming and, and bringing this plea of, of urgency to this, to this church. I love this first verse, dear friends. Dear friends, it's a, it's a mark of friendship. And it's him coming to them with empathy, with understanding. But met with that friendliness is also an urgency. You see, he wants them to know exactly what it is that they're be going to be walking into. Chapter one, when he calls them a chosen race, he says, you, in verse 17, he says, you're con to conduct yourselves in reverence during your time living as strangers. So he's saying, friends, remember that you are a chosen race, that you are strangers and exiles, but listen, I urge you, to remember this and to abstain from these sinful desires, these things you're about to be walked into that you're going to experience. John Bunyan, the, uh, the old Puritan in Pilgrim's Progress, he, he took this passage and he wrote a portion of it allegorically through the Pilgrim's Progress. And it's the scene where Christian and faithful are just coming out of the mountain and they're at the doors when they see evangelist. An evangelist comes in and they greet him as a friend, as a brother, and they're very excited to see him. But he has a warning for them because he says, I'm going to tell you something. Right outside of these doors is Vanity Fair. Vanity Fair is this city 
where there are sinful desires that rage, there are lusts that are happening, there are things there that will captivate your attention and you must not entertain them. You must stay away from them. And the iconic part of that whole um, scene in that book is that he tells them, so this is what you need to do. You need to plug your ears. You need to keep your eyes up to the heavens and show honor to everyone, but say that I'm interested in nothing that you guys have to offer. Because he says once it captivates your attention, it will have you. And this is what, what Peter is saying. We must be sober in our understanding of the very real spiritual war raging against us. Sinful desires is also interpreted as lusts if you're looking at different translations. Or even uh, if you're looking like King James or something, it says fleshly lusts. That means lusts of the flesh. And lust is normally, what we normally define it as, is as a sexual immorality, which it is. But the definition of lust has an even broader definition as well. There's more to lust than just sexual desires or sexual immorality. It's this overwhelming passion for something. Lust is defined as this overwhelming sense that you must have this. It's your body is overwhelmingly consumed and, and passionate for something that it wants. And it's different than coveting because coveting almost has a separation to it where you can, like you're coveting something that, you, that your neighbor wants. There can be, you can covet and you can be removed from it. Lust is you're all in. Lust is whatever it is that wants all of you, not just part of you. It enthralls the whole person. So a sinful desire is also, because it's a desire, it's also enjoyable, which is why it's so dangerous. And Peter is warning us to abstain from those things that want to consume all of us. And we know what those things are. We know that there are things in our society, in our culture that want all of our attention and that fight for all of us. And that he says, this is not conducive to you being a chosen people. This is not uh, conducive to you being a royal priesthood. Remember where you're from. Remember where you're from, a sinful desire. It changes the person. It changes the person from the inside out. An example of this would be Augustine's Confessions. He has this moment in this chapter where he's talking about he and his friend, this was pre-converted Augustine. They want to take their, their younger friend to the gladiator games. And this is, this is when it was really happening. This was a gladiator game where two people would be put in a ring and there's a, a stadium where people are all around and it's a fight to the death. And it's death in the most gruesome ways imaginable. I mean, and it's right there. And their friend didn't want to go. He didn't want to be a part of it because he, was, he thought it was gross to him. He thought it was a, a, a shameful thing to, to be a part of. But Augustine says, so what did we do? We really wanted him to come. We wanted to see it. And we kind of wanted to mess with him. So we beat him up a little bit and brought him in and dragged him unwillingly and set him down in the seats. And what it says in this is it says, he covered his ears 
and he closed his eyes. And as the violence was happening around him and the crowds were cheering, he could could keep his eyes closed for a long time, but he couldn't do it the entire time because over the course of the fight, he began to get curious as to what everybody was screaming about. And it's this detailed picture where he says, my friend opened up his eyes, he unplugged his ears, and he looked at the violence of what was happening. And he said it came in through his eyes and changed his heart. And my same friend who left was not the same person that walked in. That's the danger that partaking in sinful desires, desires that are not for us, can do. They can change you from the inside out. But we have hope because we look at the world around us. We say, there's no way that I can do this by myself. There's too much around me to try to know. I don't even intentionally go into situations that I don't want. Sometimes they're presented or something. There's things that that pop up. I don't know how to protect myself. That's why we need dependence. And that's why when you ask Jesus, you say, Jesus, help me. He brings, he comes close. Through the Holy Spirit, he's able to reformat our actions and give us his strength. Not just our strength, his strength. Our actions become godly actions. Our pursuits become godly pursuits. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is working within us and he's taking a weak and frail person and making them strong in Christ. And it's through here, through the Holy Spirit, working within us that we are then able to display and practice irresistible good. And that's our second point is irresistible goodness found in verse 12. So let's read verse 12 with me. He says, conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. So now we can see this call to honor, we can see this in a few, a few ways. But I think it's really helpful to actually understand the context of what Paul was talking about and apply that, obviously apply that to us, but we're going to see how this worked out in their context. So this purpose, this instruction, is he wants to awaken the church to the reality that truly good works, truly good works will eventually become foreign to the lost. Goodness, as scripture defines it, will need explanation and interpretation. It's, you can't merely do the act for itself. You must explain and interpret that act in order for people to understand it's good. Now, this is what was happening because things were going awry in this, in this time. Commentators explained that the issue of this church was that the Gentiles were hearing a language that was foreign to them and they were seeing an act that needed explanation, but they didn't understand. So they began to make their own conclusions. 
This is not good. Let me tell you why. Neighbors of the church would listen in on the conversations of the church that people were having, and they deemed that the church was filled with incestual marriages. People were practicing incest. Why would you say that? What do you mean? Well, it's because they would go by and they would hear Christians, they would hear husbands calling their wives their sisters and their wives calling their husbands brothers. And everyone was a brother and a sister in Christ. And so people started coming to the conclusion, these are all brothers and sisters and they're all marrying each other. This is crazy. What's up with this? Another, Another example was that When they would go by and they would hear the conversations of the church, they believed that they were also practicing cannibalism. Cannibalism, I promise, it's true. they They were thinking that they were doing this because every time the church gathered, they would eat the body of Christ and they would drink the blood of Christ. This is obviously a serious misinterpretation going on. There needs to be some explanation to the works that are happening right now, to the practices within the church. And so that's what Peter is answering to them. He's saying, explain. In order for for good to be irresistible, people got to know what it means. You've got to know what it means. Good works can be irresistible, but they need to be explained first and One way that we do that is through the Holy Spirit. We know that the church is the hands and feet of Jesus, and so the Holy Spirit makes us like Jesus. And when we think about the goodness of God, it is something to aspire towards. A.W. Tozer, he explains it like this about Jesus and and how we are can be like Jesus. He says this, He is tender-hearted and of quick sympathy and his unfailing attitude towards all moral beings is open, frank, and friendly. By his nature, he is inclined to bestow blessedness, and he takes holy pleasure in the happiness of his people. That is an irresistible goodness that shakes and moves cultures. But it's not merely just a good act. See, it is word and deed together so that the act defines the means. Missiologist David Bosch, he he says, in response to a um, a classic statement by Francis of Assisi, who said, preach the gospel always, and if necessary, use words. But this is what he said in response to that. He says, of course words are necessary. Unexplained deeds in themselves do not constitute the mission of God's people. Honorable conduct, irresistible goodness, must use words. Our acts define the means so that God can receive the glory and be praised. Otherwise, people will not know the hope that is within you. If you do good things and you never explain why you do them, at the end, it doesn't matter. It is a good deed, but be bold. Be bold. Tell people about the hope that's within you. Tell people the reason and the purposes for why you want to do these kind acts, why you want to help, why you want to serve them. 
So let's read on, though, to verse 13 and through 15 and see what it means to live in holy submission. Holy submission as a way of uh, living an honorable life. Holy submission, verse 13, it says this. Submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to the governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. So now I hope you can see why I think that this passage is pretty timely for us. And I don't think I need to explain to you that the conversation of submission to authority is widely talked about, both within the church and outside of the church. But in case you didn't know, recently a pastor in Seattle, he described our time beautifully. He described it like this. He said, our time is like taking the Spanish flu of the 1910s, coupling it with the unemployment of the 30s and the 40s, mashing that in with the protests of the 60s, with the recession of the 2000s, rolling that into a ball, and for good measure, adding an extremely contested presidential election. Yeah, this topic is pretty timely for us right now. What do we need? We need a biblical understanding of the role of authority and ask ourselves and let scripture define for us what is true authority. What is is true authority, but also what is holy submission and how are those two things perfectly exemplified in the life of Jesus? That's what I'm hoping to do. But I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not tackling every single element of what I just, of what I just read, of, of every cultural issue going on right now. Because, I, frankly, I don't have the time for it. But also, it's complicated. It's complicated. And sometimes the best form answer that we can receive is to go back to the beginning and lay that foundation before us so that all of us as a church can be united together in moving forward. So first, authority. What is authority? What is the role of authority, to be more clear? Well, first, authority is good. Authority is good because God ordained it. God gives people authority for the sake of leading and influencing others. Notice the word In verse 13, every human authority, every human authority. That's important because this is parents. This is caretakers. This is leaders. This is managers. This is anyone who's leading out and influencing and serving others. This is government officials. And specifically, this is what he's talking about right now. God has this general grace that he has given to the world as an established established ordination to keep peace and to keep justice. This is what good, this is what true authority is intended for, is to keep peace, 
to keep justice. So authority values and serves the life of the one they influence and they have responsibility for. So direction is never meant for control, for someone who has authority. It's always meant for good. My kids, they have a tendency to run ahead of me when we're walking on the sidewalk. But as we're walking on the sidewalk, what they don't notice is they don't notice the cross streets. So every time they hear my dad voice, which, you know, all of us who have a dad with that voice of stop, they know that they need to stop. And when they stop, they turn to me, but what's met after the stop? Come back to me. Come back to me. Authority gives people a place at the table. Authority values the person. Authority says you have a place here. It is the responsibility to serve and to invite for the guaranteed provision of safety. My children can trust me because the authority that I have over their lives is to keep them safe. And when I say stop, it is for their good. It is for their good, not for a sense of control. So then they can trust and they can willingly come back. Despite the person's shortcomings, despite anything else, submitting to authority is for the purpose of building up, not and to hold peace and justice, not to break a person down. True authority is, as our church likes to define it, as servant leadership. It is to serve. It is to serve, not to be served. Do you see where Jesus is the example here? If he came to serve, not to be served, and to bring people to that table of fellowship to God. Now, true authority. We have the role of authority, what that is. But what we also need to understand is authoritarians. Authoritarianism. Authoritarians, they use force for power and for influence. There is no fellowship under an authoritarian. The person has a purpose to serve, and if they don't meet it, they're invaluable. The purpose is not to build up. The purpose is to be served and the results are breaking down people for the sake of control. Now, that's authoritarianism. That's not authority. That's not the purpose and the role of authority. So now we ask the question, going back to our text, what is Christian submission? What does it mean to, to live in holy submission? Christian submission is first for God's sake. Christian submission is for God's sake. Look at verse 13. Submit to every human authority because of the Lord. Because of the Lord. Some translations are going to say, for the Lord's sake. And I actually prefer that, for the Lord's sake, for his purpose, meaning our ultimate allegiance is to God. Not to the government authorities, but because our God calls us to submit, we have the freedom to submit. 
because our allegiance isn't there. Our allegiance is ultimately to God. And thankfully, we have this passage to help us understand this and help us get this bigger picture of how this is so how this is so well exemplified in Jesus. How it's perfectly let me correct myself perfectly exemplified in Jesus. Remember the time when Jesus was being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's being arrested. There are soldiers all around him. In previous occasions, when it wasn't his time, he he could remove himself from a crowd, a crowd that was rioting against him. But this time, he stayed and he got arrested. Why? For the Lord's sake, for God's sake, he was in a holy submission to the will of the Father. Peter, the same Peter who wrote this, experienced the picture of true authority, the Son of God, fully God, standing there, submitting to the will of the Father, submitting to the will of the Father and putting himself under the authorities that were about to arrest him and that were about to cause him great suffering, that were about to cause him significant harm and unjust uh, behavior towards him and ultimately death. But Jesus shows us this picture that this submission was for God's sake. Was The submission was to the Father. Therefore, he can submit to the authorities. That is what holy submission looks like. Another example, what he says, Jesus says in John 5, truly I tell you, the son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son likewise does these things. He says again in verse 30, chapter 5, I can do nothing on my own. I judge only as I hear and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Friends, that's got to be us. Jesus submits to the will of the Father. We submit to the will of the Father as Christ's bride, as his church. We submit to authorities because we submit to an ultimate authority. Jesus is our Lord who reigns in heaven and earth and he built up and he ordained his church to follow him. And that's what we do. We follow Jesus. Submitting to Jesus, submitting to the Father, we submit to our authorities. We submit to the people in authority for the Lord's sake. This is holy submission but sometimes submitting to the Father will put us out of step with the governing authorities. Let me say that again. Sometimes submitting to the Father will put us out of step with governing authorities. So the question that I'm sure you've been asking, what does submission look like to a Christian or to Christians who are faced with an imperfect authority who is contorting and twisting their role. What is our response when authority 
becomes authoritarian. That is making attempts to prevent or to hinder our purpose here as Christ followers. What do we do when they have flipped the script? Instead of doing what in verse 14 says, punishing evil and praising those who do good, what if it's flipped? What if they're punishing those who do good and they praise what is evil? Scripture and our brothers and sisters in history and our in past church history teach us honorable protesting for gospel purposes. Honorable protesting for gospel purposes. Because the church lives out in holy submission to the ultimate authority of the Father, we also practice honorable protesting when there is an infringement to mitigate or weaken our allegiance to Christ. Let me say that one more time. We practice honorable protesting when there is an infringement to mitigate or weaken our allegiance to Christ. Honorable protesting is for gospel purposes. So what does that look like? First, we're going to go back to irresistible goodness. We're going to go back and honorable protesting is led out for for gospel purposes in word and in deed calling out injustice and refusing to partake in it. People don't know what's evil if you don't say anything. People don't know the danger of the desires of the world that are right before them if you never talk about it, if you never say anything to them, if there's never a sober warning that there must be a dependence or else you'll be consumed. You need to call out injustices. You need to call out warnings when and you refuse to partake in it. Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. We have to, honorable protesting is using our words to call out injustices, to call out the things that are not right for gospel purposes, for gospel purposes. Second, it's standing firm and unwavering in the truth and the promises of the gospel through irresistible good works. I hope you see how these are, these are connecting even when the culture sees it as foreign. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58 says, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, be immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. There is a purpose, friends. There is a purpose. There is a purpose for this gospel proclamation. How can we see this in church history? Well, an example, church history is the church's honorable uh, protest for the sanctity of life. You see, in ancient Rome, we have documents and we have statues and we have tombs that show there was written law and it was encouraged in the, in the society 
that if a mother had a child who was handicapped, who had a deformity, that it was encouraged for that, for those parents or that mother to bring the newborn outside of the city and dump them into the piles of manure and to dump them in the trash heaps. They would leave them there to die. Newborn babies who are handicapped, have deformities, or sometimes they're not even wanted, are dumped in piles of manure to be left for dead. But church history tells us that when these things would happen, what was the church doing? The church would, would at night, they would come through and they would walk through these hills and they would walk through these piles of manure and trash and look for the newborn babies and they would listen for the cries of the newborn babies calling out to their parents. And it was the church that would honorably protest this law that was encouraged, that says these people have no value. They would say, no, they absolutely have value because they are a child of God. So we will look for them. And it was these, it was the church that would seek out the tiny bodies of these newborn babies in the trash heaps and raise them as their own as adopted children. They would tend to them and some of them who were so weak that they would die, that family would give them a burial. This is the church and this is what the church was known for. In the catacomb of Pamphilio, there are little tombs, little tombs from families who would bury the newborns in there. And there were epitaphs that said this child was an adopted daughter of such and such. This child is an adopted son. Not only would they give them dignity of a proper burial, they would give them dignity of a name. God knows them by name. It was the church that held their allegiance to God who says each individual has a purpose and worth because they are made in my image. Therefore, we do not accept and practice the abandonment of newborns, robbing them of their worth, but we will take them as our own. We are not citizens here. We are strangers and, and exiles, pilgrims, and we live in allegiance to God. And we take them and we adopt them as our own. This is honor in action. Giving honor to what God says is good, even if that truth is in opposition to culture. Submitting to the Father's will despite my own personal comforts is honor and action. And this is the freedom that we have in Christ. We can be countercultural in this way. We can be countercultural through our freedom in Christ as citizens of God, as adopted heirs, 
as strangers and exiles. Peter continues on in his instruction in in verses 16 and 17 where he says this, submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. Honor everyone. Love the brothers and sisters. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Because Jesus lives, I am free. He has given me the strength through his Holy Spirit. And my freedom is filled with purpose. And I will use it purposefully. As servants of Christ, we submit to the will of the Father, like Jesus. And we practice acts of such irresistible goodness that although the world may see it as countercultural, through the explanation of those acts, people will see Jesus in them. And there will be a redefinition of goodness. By loving our brothers and sisters in the church, we move as the hands and feet of Jesus, walking in step with the Spirit, submitting to his lead. We fight sin. We fear God while living out our faith. We have an understanding of the reality of of the war that is raging. And when the culture makes attempts to take the citizenship from us, we honorably remind them of our true allegiance. This is not our home. And freedom is found in the one who rescued us, who's called us by name, who's adopted us into the family of God and freed us from sin and death. Will you pray with me? Jesus, thank you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for walking with us as we live lives as strangers and exiles. We thank you for your instructions of what it means to live honorably, to live in action, to explain our good deeds, and to redefine to a culture that may not understand. But we pray, God, that you would help us in this, that we would have a complete dependence on you to walk with us, to give us the strength that we do not have. We pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would equip us, would teach us, but that we would find encouragement, not just in ourselves, but in the work that you're doing through your church. That we would look around and we would see that the church are the hands and feet of Christ on earth, meant to live out holy submission to authorities to display goodness to the world for your kingdom, to share the good news. We pray, Lord, you'd give us this opportunity. We love you and in Christ's name, amen.